At last, someone might have said in that party of prisoners and, and soldiers and Christians, at, at last, Rome, someone might have said, in particular, Paul. Because for Paul, reaching Rome was not something that was uh, in his mind just for the last couple of months uh, since he appealed to Caesar. Paul wanted to get to Rome for many years now. He had long cherished this desire, this goal that propelled him. He had planned to go to the great city, to the great capital of the Roman Empire, not simply because it was a beautiful city, although it was, not simply uh, to, uh, to see the, the wonderful artwork that was there, but Paul had a pr another reason. Uh, Paul had an ultimate reason why he wanted to go there. He wanted to proclaim the gospel of saving grace to the people of Rome. The apostle who had said that he was indebted to preach to not only barbarians and Scythians and Greeks and, Mal and barbarians in Malta, uh, but he wanted also to proclaim the great and powerful gospel of God to the, the inhabitants of the powerful en empire, capital of the empire. Paul had been with this desire in mind for years now. The first time we read of it is in the book of Acts, just a few chapters before this passage we just considered. Back in chapter 19, Luke records for us that uh, while Paul was in his third missionary journey in Ephesus, uh, when he accomplished these things, Paul purposed, Luke says in 19 verse 21, purposed in the spirit when he had passed through Macedonia and Achaia to go to Jerusalem saying, after I've been there, I must also see Rome. In fact, after he left Ephesus, Paul wrote perhaps his most uh, influential work, under the influence of the Spirit, that is. Um, he wrote perhaps his greatest work, the letter, the epistle to the Romans. When he was in the city of Corinth, he probably, uh, after he left Ephesus, he wrote to the, to the Romans, to the Christians who were there. And to them he said, for God is my witness, whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of his Son, that without ceasing I make mention of you always in my prayers, making a request if by some means now at last I may find a way in the will of God to come to you. And why, why is it, Paul? Why is it that you want to go to Rome? Why is it that, that you are purposing this? For I long to see you that I may impart to you some spiritual gift so that you may uh, be established. That is, that I may be encouraged together with you by the mutual faith both of you and me. Now, I do not want you to be unaware, brethren, he says to them, that I often planned to come to you, but was hindered until now, that I might have some fruit amongst, among you also, just among the other Gentiles. And he says it. I am a debtor both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to wise and to unwise. So as much as is in me, I am ready to preach the gospel to you who are in Rome also. For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes, 
for the Jews first and also for the Greek. These words make it clear. Paul wants to go to the powerful city uh, of Rome, to the, to the city that represents all of the power and the glory of Rome, to speak of a greater power, a greater glory. He wants to speak of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the power of the gospel. And finally, at last, he's arrived in the passage that we are about to consider. Just a word for those that perhaps haven't been following this series. You know, Paul finished his third missionary journey and he went to Jerusalem. He wanted to give an update, a report of the things that were happening there. And he was warned, he was told by, by, by his fellow believers uh, in, in, in prophecy that he would face death. That he would face chains and persecution. And he was, he was, he was assured uh, that the course of action that he was taken, taking would lead to this. And yet he still went. And in the midst of uh, tumults and revolts in Jerusalem, of being arrested, sent to Caesarea, and, and in Caesarea come, staying there for two years under arrest, uh, having to present uh, and defend his case time and time again before Festus and Felix and before King Agrippa. He is then, uh, then forced to appeal to Rome because of the corruption that existed in the society. Uh, the, the governor wanted to send him back to Jerusalem and he knew that if he went back to Jerusalem, he would be tried by his fellow countrymen and he would be put to death. They had already... Uh, established a plot to kill him that was their goal all the, all along and it was only by the providence of god that he was under arrest it was actually a goodness of god to him so he appeals to caesar and uh, we followed haven't we over the last couple of chapters this trip from caesarea in judea to to rome uh, to caesar we saw that it wasn't a, the, an easy journey. It wasn't smooth sailing, as they say, both literally and figuratively. He faced many trials. Eventually, after these many difficulties, the, the, the ship came to rest or to be shipwrecked, actually, in Malta. But that wasn't the end of it. There was a snake bite, and, and off of that, uh, of that powerful deliverance of God, uh, not allowing the, the snake bite to kill Paul, uh, but saving him of this. Um, quite a number of people in Malta received him and, and, and came to him and heard the gospel. We're sure. But now we, we get to this next section. <clears throat> After staying three months, that's how the Luke records for us. They were there for three months in, uh, in Malta, a small island just off of the south of Italy, uh, after staying there for three months, um, probably to do with the winter period, so we know where we left off last week, we were in mid-November, three months added on to that we, brings us to mid-February, now the winter is subsiding, now the, 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 the weather is fairer, now the, the Mediterranean Sea is probably calmer and would allow a journey. Uh, back to, to, or on the way to Italy, Luke tells us that they boarded an Alexandrian ship. What a providence. They needed a ship, and actually there was a ship there that had wintered in Malta. 
Again, these things are not coincidental. God places things in its place so that his will would be done. And he boarded this uh, Alexandrian ship. It is a, the same, uh, from the same land as the first one, but it's a different ship. The first one was sunk. And, but this one is, is now here. And, and uh, Julius, the, the centurion, com uh, commandeers the boat or, or uh, rents the boat or pays the fare to go on the boat. And there they go. From there, oh, a, an interesting bit of information here, perhaps uh, to some of us, is that this boat, as uh, Luke records for us, uh, had, um, as he says in verse uh, 12, 13, uh, Oh, in verse 11, this Alexandrian ship, the figurehead was the twin brothers. And, and this is interesting. This, this refers to the, to the diaskuroi. Uh, uh, it was a Greek word that, rep, uh, that spoke of two twin brothers, half twin, twin brothers. You ask, how can two twin brothers be half brothers? Well, apparently that is a thing that happens in, in very rare cases. But according to Greek mythology, um, these... Uh, twin brothers, these half-twin brothers, were the, the children of Leda, uh, a woman who had, uh, father, uh, one of the fathers was Castor, uh, a mortal, uh, a normal human being, uh, and another, uh, the king of Sparta, and the other son, Pollux, um, was um, born of Zeus, uh, who had, in, uh, had sexual relationships with, with Leda. The, these two brothers, the Dioscuri, are, are what we now call, for instance, not we don't, but people call the, the constellation of Gemini. Uh, twins, right? Gemini is the Latin word for twins. Dioscuri is the, the Greek word for twins. It, it is literally the twin brothers uh, there. The point being that this was a superstition by the by the ancient uh, sailors they looked at these uh, two twin brothers as the patron uh, the protectors of all of those who fared to the seas who went to the seas Gemini that's an interesting tidbit of information there but again it proves something it proves that there is historical reliability in the text I'm sure in the years that uh, in the years, be years between this happening and Luke writing this this uh, account, in the short years that uh, passed, this boat was still around. If someone wanted, otherwise it would be very foolish if Luke was making this up. If someone wanted to go and find this Alexandrian boat, who was named or dedicated to the twin uh, to the twin brothers, to the Dioscuri, to the Gemini. Uh, he, they could find it. When someone is trying to make up uh, a lie, and this is not to teach the younger ones how to lie, by the way, but when someone wants to lie, they provide as little detail as possible because the more detail you put into it, the more, uh, the more detail you lie in the details, the more things you, you can be used against you. It would be very foolish if for some reason Luke was inventing this, to put so many names. He speaks of Julius, the centurion, he, people who could be called upon to, to provide uh, their eyewitness accounts. And I'm sure this boat was still around in the first century. I'm sure some of the sailors who 
uh, transported uh, Paul from, from Malta to Syracuse and from Syracuse to Puteoli were still around. And they could say, yeah, I remember taking a, a, a whole company of, of prisoners uh, in a boat after a very harsh winter. Matthew Henry, the, the old Puritan, he says that I suppose that these things are observed to better ascertain the story. The ship being well known by that name and sign by all that dwelt in between Egypt and Italy. But I like the, the point that uh, it's an implied point, but John Calvin makes this point at this point, uh, at this, in this section. He says that Paul make little about going into a ship that was thus dedicated or thus superstitiously honored. He says that he was no, not defiled by entering the ship, that when he did behold the altars, uh, no more than when they, he beheld the, the, the altars of Athens, because being void of all superstition, he knew that all rites of the Gentiles, all the rituals that they had, were mere illusions. This is important because so often we, we think of our, how do we interact with a, a, a superstitious generation? Do we go along? Of course not. Uh, but do we, do we make an issue every single time? Paul seems to have not made issue of some of these things at, uh, at different times. Discernment was used by him. But then in verse 12 and 13, we have a brief summary. And again, this is geographical. This can sometimes feel rather uh, uh, uneventful. But, but it's, it's interesting to see how it, it goes. So they go from Malta. We, we read there. They go, verse 12 and 13, they go uh, from Malta. They land in Syracuse. Syracuse is that uh, island uh, just off the, the tip of the boot of Italy. I think we all agree that Italy looks like a boot. So just off the tip, there's a, a triangular-shaped island. Syracuse is towards the, the southeast. Uh, um, they, they go to Syracuse. From Syracuse, they, they cross the, the, the Messina Strait. The Messina Strait is that little bit of water between the, the tip of the boot and the island. And they land in Regium, uh, an old town that today is called Regus. Uh, I forgot the name, but it's, uh, it's called Regus. Uh, in, in, uh, in the south of Italy, just at the, the tip, at the toe of the boot. And from there, from Regium, they take, they take the ship for the final stage, and they land in Puteoli. Modern day, it's called Pozzoli, uh, which is basically the same, which is off of the, uh, to the west of Naples, in a, in a kind of gulf, bay that is, exists, large gulf that exists there. So, and... And they, there in, in Potioli, they unload, and uh, I, I'm guessing they were finally uh, uh, relieved from abandoning all of these perilous uh, sea uh, journeys, uh, because now, from now onwards to Rome, they would go by foot or by horse. It must have been a great, uh, great relief after so many months uh, in the sea. From then on, uh, we read that they completed the rest of, uh, of the journey by land. Oh, by the way, Paul stayed seven days. There were some brethren there. There was a church there. They probably stayed for, for the Lord's Day worship service, as was often the case with Paul in his missionary travels. 
uh, and from there they go to Rome. It's about 200 kilometers from where they are now in Puteoli to Rome. And on the way there, the, they, they're taking the famous Via Appia. The Via Appia would have been a, it's a, a, a way that goes from the south uh, east uh, tip of Italy all the way to Rome and beyond. It was a, a very famous route uh, there. When people say that all roads lead to Rome, the Via Appia was one of those famous roads that led to Rome. Um, and from there, uh, as they are going on their way, we read that uh, people, from the ch uh, brethren from the churches uh, in, in Rome started coming down the way to meet Paul as he's going up to Rome. Probably while Paul was these seven days in Puteoli, probably word got out. The message came to, to, to the brethren in Rome. The apostle of the Gentiles, Paul, has finally come after uh, almost uh, perhaps four or five years after he wrote us a letter. Better late than never, they say. Uh, he has finally uh, made, uh, made right on his word and, and he's come. He's come to visit us. The apostle of the Gentiles has come, so they, they come to meet him. And here uh, there's two stages. One is in the Api Forum, about 70 kilometers, the Api, Api Market, uh, one, uh, about 70 kilometers away from Rome. And the other one is in the three taverns, the three ends, which is about 55 kilometers from Rome. And, and they, there they were able to meet Paul on the road. They welcomed him. They accompanied him. They, they were with him uh, all the way into the entrance of the city of Rome. Why is this significant? Why is this account here? Number one, because... Perhaps you, some of you might not know this, but the way it used to work in ancient, uh, uh, in ancient days, uh, particularly in the, in, in the Roman Empire, is that when a, a king or a, a, a captain would arrive from the field of battle, victorious, it was common for the people to come out of the city to receive him. Not only in the Roman Empire, this was true of, of Middle Eastern uh, culture as well. Uh, it was tradition to come and receive uh, a victorious king or a victorious commander uh, outside of the city walls to bring him in in, in procession. And the, the brethren in Rome did just this with the Apostle Paul. I'm not sure if, if they were doing it uh, intentively. And, but I... It seems to me that this was a, a, a grace or a comfort that God brings to Paul as he is uh, wearied, uh, travel wearied from months at sea, uh, as he's uh, perhaps uh, anxious, as we will see, with, with the in, in uncertainties of what will happen in Rome. Here is God bringing a, an element of courage uh, and of, of comfort to, to Paul. He was not a hero in human eyes. He was there as a prisoner. But in a sense, he was a great spiritual giant. The Christians in Rome understood this. And they met him on the way, thus honoring him. 
And we read that these meetings, these, uh, these interactions brought great, uh, uh, led Paul to, to give thanks and to be encouraged. Why was he discouraged? Well, think of it. Think, put yourself in Paul's shoes for a moment. All the uncertainties, not, not, notwithstanding all that has happened uh, back there, that the Lord delivered you from, all the shipwrecks, the snake bites, the, the troubles along the way, the two years of imprisonment in, in Caesarea, the revolt in, in, uh, in, uh, in Jerusalem, all notwithstanding the things in the past, but just looking ahead, all the uncertainties that he had up until the moment that he received this, uh, this visit, this meeting with, with the, the Christians from Rome. And notwithstanding as well that he was not a, a particularly healthy individual. He had a thorn in the flesh. We don't know what it is. Perhaps this was bothering him. He, his eyesight was not very good. So he wasn't a, 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 this kind of uh, knight in shining armor that we so often picture. But he might be wondering. Because not all, in everywhere that he went, he was well received. How would be the reception of the Christians? I wrote a letter to them. How do they receive it? Will they, will they welcome me? Will I be welcomed by him? That's a sad story uh, that perhaps we'll look a, a little bit more in depth uh, next week. But actually, the sad sting of this story is that although the, the Christians received him very well initially in Rome, by the time Paul uh, is nearing his, uh, his martyrdom, we read that most of them abandoned him. We read that Onesiphorus, when he came to Rome, he had to diligently seek where Paul was because no one knew of Paul. It wasn't easy to find him. So in a day without cell phones and text messages, it's perfectly normal that Paul was perhaps wondering what kind of reception will I get in Rome? And when I come before Emperor Nero, of all the emperors that Paul was uh, scheduled to appear before he was scheduled to appear before perhaps one of the most vicious and brutal of emperors true he, ha he hadn't quite yet uh, uh, gone uh, completely mad uh, as he later did uh, by now Nero was still somewhat stable historically we know that Nero was a uh, while some of his friends were still around, he, he had good counselors. It was only towards the, the, the latter stage of his life that he actually became vicious and brutal. Um, but I'm sure it was no, uh, no, no easy task. I'm sure it, was, it could be quite cruel even in these early days of his uh, emperorship. What, would, what, what was awaiting him in Rome? A dungeon, uh, like the one in Philippi, with his uh, feet uh, tied, with his hands tied. What would be waiting him? A Roman fort, perhaps, maybe a little bit better, house arrest. What kind of physical punishment will he have to endure this time? All of these things might have been acting up on his mind. But the loving welcome of the Christians in Rome, the love of the brethren, we read, served to encourage him and to comfort him so that 
Paul gave thanks to God and was encouraged. And the last section we will consider, uh, it's that section here um, in our Bibles from uh, verse 21 and 22. Just this first meeting, we'll look at, at the second part of the, or the second meeting with the Jewish leadership uh, next week. Um, the last section is dedicated to Paul to uh, stay at Rome. First of all, we read that actually he wasn't placed in some uh, dark, uh, uh, moldy dungeon in, uh, in, the, in the catacombs uh, of Rome. That he was actually put in a, under house arrest with a soldier. He was, he was not put in maximum security prison. He was actually minimum security prison. And this is a mercy and a grace from God. Because as he is there, he can still function. He can still have people come to him, the Jews, the Christians. He can, he can actually still testify and do the work that he was called to do. There was possibly a sort of a chain. We read there, don't we, that he was placed... Uh, oh, sorry, the, the last section in, in verse uh, 16 and then onwards. Um, the prisoners to the captain. But Paul was... Deliver, permitted to dwell by himself with a soldier who guarded him. The practice was, uh, uh, in those days, that under house arrest, you would still be chained to a soldier. The soldier wouldn't be with you uh, all throughout the day. They would have shifts. Uh, the, I think the, the estimation, or the, they suppose it was around four-hour shifts. Uh, but Paul would spend the rest of his days, uh, if this was his final arrest, uh, chained to someone under house arrest with a measure of freedom, which was a, a goodness, a mercy from God, but still. That's why Paul, by the way, when he writes the letter to the Ephesians, he actually writes the letter to the Ephesians in this, under, in this period while, while he is under house arrest in Rome. He calls himself a, an apostle in chains. He's not just speaking figuratively. Oh, I'm I'm under house arrest, so I'm an apostle in chains. He was actually an apostle in chains. And that's why, as well, uh, Philippians, another letter written during this period, Paul says that because of the grace of God has been proclaimed to the whole of the guard of the palace, to the whole of the Praetorian guard. Can you imagine being shackled for four hours to Paul and not hearing the gospel? I'm sure all of them would... Uh, had an opportunity to hear the gospel preached by the, by the great apostle. That's why Paul was so overjoyed, even in the midst of trial, tribulation, and persecution, and imprisonment. And he has this conversation. I, I won't go into much detail. We'll look at it perhaps next week uh, uh, to a fuller extent. But Paul calls the Jewish leaders. Again, the, the pattern of Paul was always this. He goes first to the Jews. Because if he goes straight to the Gentiles, he, he runs the risk of estranging his testimony to the Jews. So he always goes first to the Jews. And once they reject or once they've, uh, his job to the Jews is done, he then goes to the, to the Gentiles. But he also, perhaps, part of the reason why he calls the Jewish leaders uh, in was to, to, to get a feel for the situation in Rome and to assure them uh, of his well-meaning in coming to Rome. Again, the Jewish people were not a very well-beloved church in, 
in the Roman Empire. The, the previous emperor, Emperor Claudius, just a, a, a decade or so before, had expelled all the Jews from Rome. The Jews were not a, a people that were in the best graces of the, uh, of the culture in Rome. And here comes the, the Apostle Paul. And let me say, the Apostle Paul, if he wanted, he could have done great severe damage to the Jewish people in Rome. Because not only he was Jewish, but he was a Roman citizen. If he were to say what really happened in Jerusalem, if he were to say that he was arrested, that he was in prison, if he were to say that there was a plot by the Jewish people to kill a Roman citizen in Rome, in the presence of, of Caesar, this wouldn't bode well to the, for, the, for the Jewish people in Rome. And I think that's part of why Paul says this. I'm not coming here to accuse my nation. If you're a Jew in Rome, that's a relief. You're not coming to accuse us. Although there was plenty of accusations that he could bring to, to bear. And he, the, the reply he received was that they would uh, listen to him further. Perhaps the, the one thing I will mention here is that what he says uh, there at the end of verse um, at the end of verse 20 for this reason therefore I have called for you to see you and speak with you because for the hope of Israel I am bound with this chain what is the point that Paul come, uh, is bound to the chain because of the hope of Israel what is the hope of Israel you might ask well Paul had already spoken about this back in uh, when he was arrested for the first time in Jerusalem he you remember there were the Sadducees and there were the Pharisees and he kind of pitted them one against each other uh, one against the other because of the hope of Israel the hope of Israel is is the resurrection that is the hope of Israel the hope of resurrection his point was that he was bound there, that he was chained and, and brought to Rome because of the hope of Israel. Isaiah 26, 19, your dead man shall live. Your dead men shall live together with my dead body. Shall they arise, awaken, and sing you that dwell in the dust. For, thy, for your dew is like the dew of the herbs and the earths shall cast out the dead. It's, the, it's Job. Job speaks of this. The Old Testament hope of resurrection. Though my, the worms destroy my body, Job says, though I rot and my flesh decays, with my eyes, with my flesh, I will see the Lord, the God. Daniel 12, verse 2, And many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life, some to shame and everlasting contempt. That is the hope of Israel. Not only that the Messiah, Christ, would come, and that, is the, that was the hope, and Paul is saying, I believed that hope, I've seen the fulfillment, but more than that, that the kingdom would be inaugurated, that the kingdom would be restored, and that the people who had died, they would partake of that kingdom. That was the Jewish hope. That was the hope that the Pharisees had and that the Sadducees made fun of them for believing in the resurrection from the dead. And Paul says, because of the hope of Israel, 
Because I've seen the Messiah. Because I have hope toward God, as Paul said to, to, to Agrippa and Felix. Because I have hope toward God. Or as he said to Agrippa, the hope of our 12 tribes earnestly serving God that night and day, a hope to come for which, uh, hope's sake, King Agrippa, he says, I am accused by the Jews. The hope that there is a, that there is a resurrection, that mes- the people of God will dwell with God forever. That is the hope why he was in chains. And they said, and that's a, a very welcome uh, reply, verse, uh, verse 21 and 22. They said that they would hear him yet further on this. And we'll look at this further uh, next week. But let me just draw a few um, conclusions here as we get to the, con- to the end of the book of Acts. The first lesson that we learn in this passage, brethren, Perhaps the greatest that we have been learning throughout these last two or three chapters is that God is sovereign. And in his sovereign providence, God in Christ makes all things happen in such a way that his will is accomplished. Christ rules over everything. Christ rules over the, the, the weather. That w- he rules over the snake bites. He rules over the heart of the of the, of the na- natives of, of Malta. He rules over the hearts of the, of the, the centurion. He rules over the, the chains that are currently imprisoning Paul. And that is a, a lesson for us. Just as Paul rested, just as Paul drew comfort and encouragement, at times struggling, like we all do, but just as Paul drew comfort and encouragement in knowing that God is in control, we too should rest in the certainty that Christ, our Lord, is sovereign, that anything and everything that happens in our lives is under his sovereign control. And in, in whatever where, uh, mysterious way this might happen, it works out for the good of those who love him, of those who are called according to his purpose. purpose. Our lives, brethren, are in his hands. Everlasting ha- uh, arms. We're, we're safe even in the midst of storms, shipwrecks, viper bites, even in the midst of imprisonment. God controls everything. And we can rest on that. The second element, perhaps, is the element of contrast. For once in this journey from Caesarea uh, Philippi to, to Rome, for once it seems that it's all smooth sailing. It's smooth, it's restful, it's a contrast. The first stage of the journey was troubled. No sooner something uh, seemed to be in the past, uh, in a trouble, a wind or a tempest, something else was happening. But here... After the waves, after a, mo- uh, uh, an, a night of weeping, comes a morning of joy. Sometimes we, we are in the midst of waves. 
in our lives. Bad days, problems upon problems, shipwrecks, snake bites, uh, tempests and storms and all of these things. But the same thing that God said to Paul, he says to you and me, be of good cheer. Be of good cheer. The waves and the tempests will pass. For some of us, they will take years to pass. Perhaps for some of us, they might even only pass in glory, in heaven. But God says, be of good cheer. Be of good cheer. They will pass. Calmer periods will come, and usually come, even in this life. The third instruction, encouragement for us has to do with how the church received uh, Paul. It has to do with our responsibility as a church. What a precious thing. What a lovely thing that, that Paul, that the instrument that God used to overturn Paul's condition Whatever was causing it, we don't know. We can assume or we can uh, try to figure out. Whatever was causing it, we don't know. But what we know is that he was in need of encouragement. And what a precious thing that the instrument that God used this time, but I would argue it's his ordinary way of bringing this about, was the church, was the love of the brethren. In this, they will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. What a great comfort. What a great encouragement we can be to our brethren. What great encouragement the brethren was to Paul. And what a great rebuke, perhaps. At least a, a, an exhortation for us. Have I been a great encouragement? Have you been a great encouragement? Has my love uh, been such that people have been encouraged? Has your love been such that people have been encouraged? Let this be an exhortation for us of what God can accomplish by the simple uh, fact that we love one another. That we forgive one another. Not simply that we put up with one another, but you actually love being with one another. Sometimes you hear uh, people speaking of the, the relationship between brethren. Oh, it's such a, a wonderful thing. Uh, look at how we put up with each, we, with each other. We, don't, we shouldn't put up with each other. We should love one another. Put up is a, is a completely different thing. What a great comfort this should be. Or a what a great exhortation this should be for us. And finally, brethren, if we don't take anything else from as instruction this this morning from the from this passage, I would be happy if we took just this. Let us learn from Paul to have a a one focus the same one focus in our lives as he had. See, Paul was focused on one mission, 
He wanted to get to Rome, not to see the buildings, not to see the great palaces and the, and the Colosseum and the, and the, and the Hypodrome and, and the, to, to see the many bridges that already crossed the, the river Tiber. He wasn't there to see the, the, the marble arches, the, tri the arcs of triumph depicting the great battles of the Romans. He wasn't there to see any of that. I'm sure as a learned man as he was, he could see beauty in, the, in some of these things. I'm sure as a learned man as he was, he, he could see the, 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 the wonderful culture, uh, wonderful culture, the, the, some beauty in the, in the culture uh, of the Romans. But he went there for another purpose, and that purpose was summarized to the, to the Jewish believers. Uh, to the Jewish uh, leaders that came to him in Rome. He came to preach the power of the gospel, the hope of Israel, not only to Jews, but to Greeks, not only to the natives of, of, of Malta uh, or, to the, uh, or to the ones in, in uh, Puteoli, but now to the citizens of Rome. And he did that. He did that. Even as he was in Rome, he had one goal in life, to be an encouragement. Perhaps some of his greater work or some of his most heartwarming works were the works that he wrote in chains, the letter to the Ephesians, the wonderful letter to the Philippians. Speak of a letter that, that, that oozes with joy and rejoicing and real and it's the letter of Philippians, and yet it was the letter that was written in the worst just moments or just months or a year or so before Paul's death as he was imprisoned. Paul wanted to go to, to Rome to preach the gospel, to preach Christ, to preach the power of God in the gospel for the salvation of everyone. Doesn't matter who you are, Paul would say to you if he was here in London. Doesn't matter if you're a pagan in Lystra, if you're a, a, a Jew in Jerusalem, if you're a native in Malta, if you're a, a Roman in Rome, a, a, a pagan in, uh, in Corinth, or, a, or a, a philosopher in Athens. Paul has been through it all. And to all of them, the message was the same. And the message is the same to us. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Turn from your sins and you will be saved. Paul did this. He might, might have been confined, facing a trial, but he was resolute. He was one-minded. Nothing could keep this man silent. Even in the midst of, whether in the midst of joy or sorrow, whether in, in any condition, he was focused on preaching the gospel. So the next time, brother and sister, you look at your cross and you say, it's very heavy. It's heavy indeed. Next time you see a, uh, a crook in your lot, as uh, the old Puritan used to say. 
it's not your job to try to straighten it. You cannot straighten those things. But it is your job to use it for the glory of God. And that's what Paul did. Let us say with Paul, in the midst of our trials, in the midst of our sorrows, I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. So I conclude by saying this. What is your focus in life? What is it that you aim at? What is your driving force? May God help us. May God bless us. May God give us that uh, desire to serve him in the places where he has placed us. In the same way that he placed Paul, he places us in, in, in situations and in relationships to be used by him. That we may as well be fruitful.